Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. How's it going today, guys? Today we have an excellent show, especially if you're a fan of real estate investment. We have just an all-around great guy, Mr. Mark Kinney. So Mark and Tamil Kinney are seasoned real estate investors and the founders of Think Multifamily, a leading multifamily acquisition and education company that prides itself on a family-oriented approach to business. Mark and Tamil are investing in over 4,000 units with a strategy focused on acquiring, owning, and operating apartments and providing clients with otherwise unobtainable real estate investments at reduced risk. Think Multifamily provides innovative technology simplifying the investments process, facilitates avenues for investment, increases returns through capital campaigns, and perhaps most importantly, provides people with better places to live. Despite Mark and Tamil's family-oriented approach, things weren't always so rosy. Indeed, the genesis of their philosophy came about when Tamil nearly walked out on Mark after plunging himself into 80-plus-hour work weeks. With that rude awakening fresh in their minds, Mark and Tamil redoubled their efforts and went into business with each other. Now they're focused on giving back to their community with a large portion of Think Multifamily's profits going to support various charities. Tamil herself is a registered nurse and has gone on a number of medical mission trips. As business partners, they are also passionate about apartment investing and offer a holistic approach to educating others on how to become successful in this business, as well as in other areas of their lives. In their very first year of coaching others, they helped close on 2,500 units in excess of $180 million. Hey, good afternoon, Mark. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for joining me today. Good afternoon. Yeah, no, I'm glad to. So how's it going today? Having a pretty good day? Yep, so far. We actually just got back yesterday from Florida on a little mini vacation. So uh, it was good. So kind of Okay, okay, good, good. How, what part of Florida? We were in, uh, we're on 30A, which was, we were in Ro- um, by Rosemary Beach. Uh, seaside, kind of all those cities run together, Seagrove. So uh, it's a really, really nice area. It's on the Gulf side, so the the water is all kind of, you know, kind of greenish, bluish, but it also has white sand, which most of Florida does not. Okay, okay. Yeah, I lived in Florida for nine months down in the Miami area. Oh, you did? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's cool. Did you get any business in while you were there? No, it was all just uh, all just uh, pleasure, basically. We had our attorney with his wife and three kids, and then we had somebody else in our group that went down there with uh, with her daughter as well. So it was good. Okay. All right. Very cool. All right. So, yeah, I know you got a busy day, so we'll hop right into it. So yeah, for sure, man. Yeah. Cass, I'm just going to be using the audio so you don't have to worry about optics or anything. So. Oh, okay. So I'll uh, I'll go go off video then. You want better? Usually better. Uh, way, either way is fine, but we'll only be using the audio portion. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. And I'm good to go whenever you are. All right. All right. So yeah, why don't we? So Mark, why don't you um, tell the listeners a little about yourselves and how you started and ended up where you are today? Okay. First, thanks for having me on. Really excited to be on your show today. Uh, I grew up in Michigan. I'm in Dallas now. Um, one of seven kids, and kind of grew up where we had we had food and we had roof over our head, and that was about it. So pretty young age, I was always like, I want to do something where I can make more money. Um, and my dad worked a lot of hours and things like that. And I have a twin brother, so when we both went to college together, our senior year, we said, hey, we like real estate. Let's start looking at real estate. And we started uh, looking pretty heavily, and we bought like a duplex for steel. So we were 22, kind of rehabbed it, things like that. 
And then we started working a bunch of hours, but we continued to buy small properties, two to four units okay. uh, in Michigan. And then uh, kind of got caught up in corporate world and continued to buy small properties for, for quite a while. And then I started an IT company as well. I was a CPA before that. Yeah, I became an IT consultant. And then I started working tons and tons of hours, had my own company, had projects all over the world and caused a lot of issues uh, with my wife because I was never home. And I was when I was home, I still wasn't engaged, right? I always, always do is think about work. I would sleep like three hours a night and things like that. So uh, she was like, man, you need to do something different or, or things aren't going to really work out too well. So I said, oh, okay, we need to, when well, we start looking at larger apartment complexes, we both love real estate. We were doing it for a long time together. So 2013, we started looking at syndication, just a fancy word for you know, kind of bringing other people, other investors alongside with us in a deal that we find. And we've done about 8,000 doors uh, since then. We're in six states. We'll be in a seventh state uh, end of the month. And we just kind of started buying, you know, a little bit larger and larger and bigger properties, in some cases, nicer properties. We bought a lot of properties that are 97% occupied, we bought properties that are like 46% occupied and kind of everything uh, in between. And then we started doing coaching and events and things like that. So it's full time for both of us. I don't do IT anymore. I actually haven't done it in, in a long time and I don't miss it at all. So that's, that's kind of how we got started. I won't say we were forced into buying larger properties, but it was kind of one of those things where I kind of got pushed into it, even though I didn't have the, in my opinion, I didn't have any extra time. I was so busy. But it, was, it allowed me to kind of wean off my consulting. My business started going down, you know, whatever, 75%, 50%, and then to where I stopped doing it uh, altogether. Uh, and that's what we've been doing uh, for, for a lot of long years now. Okay. And, I, and so you were in the corporate world and started your own IT company. So that's not the normal. How, how did that happen? How did you end up starting your own IT company? Yeah. So I... I worked for a number of consulting companies and um, always kind of been a little entrepreneurial minded. Uh, and then I was like, you know what? I can think, I, you know, I, I was money driven. I was, you know, when I was, especially when I was younger. And I was like, I can make a lot more money doing this on my own. And I, but you know, you're always that, it's always a fear piece because you're like, now I'm, I'm going from having, I actually had a really high paying job, frankly, as a consultant and benefits and things like that. But I always looked at it that I can always go back to that. I mean, I have a lot of people in the industry that I know. I knew I could always go back and get a job if I wanted to. So I took a shot, it was 2008. Two people were like, that's a bad time to do it. But uh, I never had a day uh, ever where I didn't have a project going on. I usually had too many projects going on. Uh, and I had built relationships over the years. So it was it, for me, it was more, I was sick of corporate world because I, I felt a lot of companies I've worked for made decisions for all the wrong reasons. Complain about not having money for certain things, but it's because they waste money. And they make a lot of uh, other decisions that important ones were made politi for political reasons. They weren't made based on any merit whatsoever. And I just got frustrated with it. I was actually, uh, and I would evaluate different companies to either buy and things like that. And it would come down, we'd do all this valuation, we'd pick a company, and then one of the executives would say, Well, my my nephew is a venture capitalist in this other company. So we're going to buy this company instead or use this company instead. And I got sick of it. Okay. Got it. Got it. All right. So now we have, um, think multifamily. Um, what mechanism did you use to create your company and what's the, um, vehicle that you've experienced the most growth over the past few years? Well, when we first started, we were already buying multifamily before we, we created, in 2016, where we created Think Multifamily. We were already syndicating deals before that. Uh, one of the main reasons we created it, one, you know, kind of more a little more branding, but also we were starting, we wanted to start an educational piece. We just felt there were a lot of people, a lot of good people in the industry, for sure, and some people in the industry, in my personal opinion, and firsthand experience that aren't that good and uh, really don't have their... Uh, everyone else's best interest in mind, in my opinion. So we started kind of pretty slowly doing like, like meetups and webinars. And then we did like a one day event and we kind of got full fledged. Um, I would say the biggest growth for us um, is tough probably to pin it down, but I think um, being more active on social media, more on the branding side, 
um, and then giving back. So if you have things you are doing that will provide free content. So if you if you're a syndicator looking for investors, try to put free content out there for for investors. Um, end of the day, you do want to capture their email address some form or fashion because you know that's how you communicate with them and get them potentially to have a conversation with you and maybe get them added to your investor list at some point in time. But for us, it was more doing the content creation and then providing content to people and doing webinars is probably where we got the most growth. Okay, okay. And just um, digging into that a little bit when you're talking about um, when you are putting free content out there for your, for your followers and you say you have some investors that do want to capture emails, what, are you, what would you suggest the best way to capture those emails when you're engaging your followers on social media or using um, podcasts, what would you suggest for that? Yeah, you want something that you're giving them, but you're giving them just a piece of it. So let's say, I'll make it up, you know, 10 steps to multifamily investing. And maybe give them first three steps that, you know, hopefully good content, they're like, and you're like, hey, do you want to see the rest? And they get a pop-up and I wouldn't ask them for a bunch of information. People do that and people just close a pop-up. Uh, you definitely want email and then maybe their name, but even phone number and stuff, I would, I don't, Think you need to capture once you get their email you can reach out to them and start getting where you're communicating with them ask them if they want to be on a phone call discussion things like that but then you, it's kind of continual you need to keep kind of providing information to people it's not like a one one-stop shop and you're done um but that's you need something of con content based that people are attracted to interesting to them and you give them a piece of it but not the whole thing once you're there you know, kind of go back to the content. People are like, why do you give free content away? We give a fair bit of free content. And in uh, some cases, you can charge for that. Reality is you can listen to all podcasts in the world, read all the books, and you get all the, the – but you, you can't just go out and typically buy a multifamily deal, 100-plus unit on your own. You still need help. Now, you might not need help from us. You need help from somebody, typically. So we're all for kind of giving that content to people. Um, you learn – a lot from that, but until you do your first deal, it's just night and day from what you learn from doing a deal versus not doing a deal. But so give content, and but make sure you have a way to capture after you give them pieces of information. Say, hey, if you want more, then get them into your list that way. Yeah, and I think that's one of the great, great things about your group. When I started researching um, groups that do things like yours, is you guys do a lot of. Um, I would say supporting people in your group and, oh, yeah. and joint ventures and helping them out. And you, I know you get back to your followers when someone sends you an email, you get back to with them pretty, pretty quickly. I know a lot of the um, so-called gurus out there. I mean, they, they'll be happy to take your money, but it's hard to get in contact with them when you have a question or concern about something. So I'll, I'll say even some of your competitors have great things to say about you when you when you even when you're asking about the thing multifamily. Oh, that's great. I mean, we we started it that way. That's the way I did the IT business. That's where I, you know I just was you know kind of grew up that way. And of course, it's a choice. But you know, I had you know Fortune, several Fortune 100 companies as clients. I'm just a little guy, right? When I was doing IT, but we hear the same thing. And you know, I was joking on one of the webinars we did and. I said, if you can ask any single person in our group, like every single person in our group you talk to, I mean, if they said that I'm not responsive, I'll give you 10 grand. But <laughs> I have to give them a lie detector test and they have to pass it in order for me to do that. Because end of the day, you're not going to, I'm not going to, I know someone doing the first deal, even though for me it might sound like the, the issue they're having is, is relatively small in the grand scheme of things. But for your first deal, there are a lot of small little things that can freak people out. And I never want people to be sitting there going, man, this guy isn't responsive. and I'm, I'm freaking out here. No one's here to help me. You're never going to experience that with us. I'll always be there for you. Worst you're going to get is a text from me back in, you know, two minutes saying, hey, I'm in a, I'm in a meeting. I'll get back within an hour. And that's, that's the way we run our business. Yeah, yeah I, think that's a, I think that's great. So, yeah, kudos to you guys on that. So um, in the current space, what are you currently seeing as advantages in the space? Uh, you mean for uh, the coaching or for the purchasing? Yeah, for the purchasing. Purchasing for us, it's been, you know, we're, we're considered good buyers, meaning if we go out on a deal, put an offer in, we've done our homework first, 
and a lot of people have not. So we, we're going to get with a property management company. We're going to get with a lender. We're going to get with a tax tax person. We're going to get it with insurance. So our, we kind of have everything in you know order before we're submitting letter of intent. Now, sometimes it's more difficult to make all work, but that's our goal is to get that all done up front. And then once we're under contract, we're very fair, meaning if the seller really wants to sell, very few things can come up where it's going to cause a problem. If we say we're going to do something, and you can ask any broker we've worked with, we're going to do exactly what we said we're going to do. We're not going to try to do switcheroo and say, well, let's just get, get it under contract and then like try to retrade, which just means you're trying to go back and ask for you know a credit after you're under contract. There could be legitimate reasons for that. There really are. Uh, when someone says I will ne they never do that, then they're buying you know newer properties. You, you can't buy 70s and 60s and 80s properties and say I would never retrade because what if you go in and you get uh, like literally we just had we just had a property looked at uh it was last week and it has four hundred fifty thousand dollars of retaining wall work well we don't get any more rent for that so that isn't you know you know and they didn't disclose that hey it needed that much work and things like that so that could be a legitimate reason to go back and say hey you know this this is more than we thought but reality is if you do what you say you're going to do you're responsive and just be nice. I mean, you don't have to be a pushover, but nobody wanna, wants to work with jerks. We work, we've worked with sellers that were jerks. And for whatever reason, we, our experience and my experience has been, if the seller's a jerk, then their attorney's a jerk, and everyone else they work with is a jerk. Just the way it is. So work with good people around you. That doesn't just mean that they're good technically. They should have the same values as you. Um, you know, not, not every single aspect of it, but for integrity and character, that's why everybody on our team, whether it's you know CPAs or attorneys or mortgage brokers, whoever it is, we've vetted these people. We've known most of them for, for years. We think we have the best of the best. Um, and that's very, very valuable because we can also move a lot faster. You know, we did one deal, you know, advantage. We did a deal in an area we were already in. We had the, the team kind of already lined up. We did a five-day due diligence. I don't suggest that or recommend it. Um, there were reasons why the seller kind of wanted things done that way, but we got it done in five days. Again, I'm not saying that's a great thing to do, but we felt confident we could do it because we had a team there already. Um, so those type of things will also put, you know, putting hard money down with some some contingencies. Uh, we'll do that on a regular basis. Um, but end of the day, being easy to work with and being you know, doing what you say you're going to do are going to be the most important things. So yeah, so talking about um, working with difficult people, I, one thing I've come across doing some deals is the seller may have, I mean, the I may have a great relationship with the seller, but his attorney is just an uh, awful person to work with. Have you come across that, and how, how, do you, how do you deal with that situation once you're into a deal and you start your negotiation? Yeah, we have. Um... If it's an attorney, we have our attorney involved. You know, some people think, you know, most attorneys aren't going to get involved in business decisions, typically. Uh, sometimes they will. Our attorney, I've known for 11 years, great guy. He will get more involved in the business decisions. So if we're dealing with an attorney, we'll usually have our attorney kind of be the middle middleman. Okay. Make him be the, he said, I'll be a bad guy for you, right? Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes people will say, well, I don't really want to get an attorney involved because I have to pay and things like that. All I would say is that these, you know, yes, you're paying for people's expertise and you're paying, you know, you should be paying for, you know, they shouldn't be working for free. But end of the day, uh, it will save you so much headache in the long run and they'll make sure it's done correctly and things like that as well. Um, so uh, I don't like dealing with uh, seller's attorneys either, frankly. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. The other one is, is, you know, if your attorney doesn't think you should get involved, the other one is you know, try to get, the broker doesn't get paid, you know, selling broker won't get paid till the property sells. Right. So right. in some respects they have the most to lose at least initially. So trying to get them on your, your side, of course they do work for the seller, but we've had, we've had, uh, you know, brokers that work for sellers that have pushed our agenda, if you want to say with their, their client, their seller really, really hard. So if you can get them kind of involved in it, um, then that's that's good too. Uh, end of the day, sometimes it's just going to be people personality-wise. Uh, there's a big difference between just personality and someone being, you know, lacking integrity and character. Those that's actually much worse, obviously. 
Um, but typically, there's a solution to almost every problem. Very <laughs> rarely have we found that we just can't get past something. Yeah, and have you found that um, you've needed to increase your, um, let's say, people skills or how to deal with difficult people skills since getting into this business? Without a doubt. Um, I was more aggressive, if you want to say. Not, not in a great way, probably, when I was doing IT. Um, I mean, I had a lot of, you know, all, all the customers liked me because I would get stuff done quickly and in unrealistic time frame, things like that. But I, I did kind of have a low tolerance sometimes with people that either didn't get stuff quickly or things like that. And at the end of the day, you have to realize everyone's made different. Everyone has different skill sets. They have, they have a, I undervalued other people's skill sets if it wasn't kind of the same as mine, essentially. Even with my wife, when we started Think Multi Family, she has a whole slew of skill sets, you know, that I don't have and don't really care to have, frankly. And I undervalued that originally. I just say, don't do that. Don't necessarily, there are different, there is different value for different skill sets. Let's be real about it, right? Some things are more highly valued than others, but don't think just because you do something different than somebody else and you're better at something than that they're less valuable than you because they can have something, they can definitely bring something to the table. But people skills, for sure, I would just say, you don't want to be known as a hothead. Um, you don't want to go off on people. Um, some people think that's the only way to get things done. Believe me, I've had, I've raised my voice before on a number of occasions on different situations for sure. Um, but I do it purpose, you know, on purpose. I don't do it out of like anger or I'm just, you know, going off the handle. I, I really don't try to even get into situations like that because end of the day, everyone typically is trying to work for the same, same goal. Sometimes you get someone that's not, and if they are, then just be a little more forgiving um, if they're not getting things as fast as you or whatever it might be. But there, there's no question, skill set, uh, people skills, things like that, that is one of the top skills you can possibly have in the industry for sure. Yeah, definitely. I would definitely recommend that for anyone getting into the business to read some books, take some classes, really up their game in people skills because that's, yeah, that really matters. It does. All right, so Mark, so let's say you've um, so you've you've closed on a deal, and um, I know when you close on a deal, you usually with your investors, you usually set your exits five to seven years, maybe even as long as ten. But um, as you know, sometimes those stars don't align, and maybe you're at your exit, what you set your exit to be, but the numbers just aren't where you need them to be. So how how do you set the frame for letting investors know? they may be in a property longer than expected. Yeah, you know, 10 years is pretty long from the start for a lot of investors, although I don't think it's a bad idea um, if, you know, certain situations where you keep it longer. Um, you know, I think you look at it, different opportunities throughout the cycle to capture bigger paydays. Yes, distributions, you know, are nice and can, you know, pay a decent amount, but you want to look for opportunities throughout the whole process where you can maybe do, let's say it's a refinance or a supplemental loan and get, you know, very large return of capital. That's what you're looking for, right? Um, sooner, hopefully, than you even thought. Now, if you have a property and you're like, well, hey, you know what? Uh, this is just not performing uh, like it should. It doesn't always mean you should hold it longer. Um, there are certain reasons you might choose not to. Maybe it needs way more CapEx now uh, that whatever, that you held it for five years and now roofs need to be done, there's foundation issues, plumbing, whatever it might be, and you're like, man, we don't have the capital to do that. So that's the number one. So you can you know, ask for, for capital, right? And some investors might say yes, some might say no. But just to hold it longer, just to meet your... You, you, you'll say it's going to be 100% return or whatever, double your money, and you're going to do it in five years. You say, nope, it's going to be seven or eight years. There are other things that have to be in place for you to still do that. You know, what's going to change between year five and eight? Hmm. Uh, if you have no more money coming in for CapEx, you're going to be, the property is what it is, it's going to need more work. If you, you know, if you're running out of interest only payments, then your payments are going up. Uh, so there are, I wouldn't say just hold it longer 
to try to meet a certain return because at the end of the day, if you hold it for three, four years longer, people could be doing something with that capital too. So lots of times the limited partners and investors don't have a say in a sale. I personally think as a syndicator, you should listen to investors um, and propose different options. Um, but it's, it's uh, each deal is separate as far as how you're going to hold it. Like you said, stars might not align for sure. And sometimes you might just have to sell a property. Uh, we sold a property, two properties that were doing pretty well, um, but it was more of a partnership issue. So we sold them after two years instead of five. They, those two performed well. Um, we had a third property with his partner. It's a very long story. It's a whole, a whole different podcast, frankly, but um, it did not perform well. Um, he did some things he shouldn't do and, and things like that. So sometimes you just have to make the hard decisions. Um, but if you're going to hold it longer, investors are going to say, what are you going to do different between year five and eight to make this different than what it's been for the first five years? And you need to have an answer for that. Okay. And more on a property that's not performing, have you had instances where you would have to um, suspend distributions? And how do yeah, you distribute? Yeah. So we typically pay a preferred return and, it, and it's, uh, it will accrue. So if we don't pay it, it'll accrue and still owed. And whatever, you know, if you sell, refinance, things like that, they will get that accrued interest first. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, number of properties right now, uh, when COVID hit, we said no distributions on any properties, period. Um, we This past month, we paid out on about five deals. But it's tough because who knows what's going to happen, right? And, and investors are sitting there going, they, they perform pretty well during COVID, which they have, but we're still kind of a little bit on, on some unknown territory here is unemployment. Of course, you know, it's being potentially going to continue on uh, longer and things like that. But yeah, you, you might have to make those decisions. The, the, the good thing for investors is that does accrue when you have a preferred return. If you don't have a preferred return, that, that money that it doesn't accrue, it's not owed. Right. So that's why as an investor, I like preferred returns. As a syndicator, frankly, I don't. I don't like preferred returns. I'd rather not have a preferred return, but we, we we pay them. Okay. And is that? Do you do preferred returns for most of your your deals? We do. Okay. Yes, and I've heard that's pretty much the norm right now. I think most syndicated responses are have pretty much suspended distribution. Even and as you say, most properties are still performing as they have a year ago up to this point, at least. Yeah, so since COVID hit, uh, July was the first month we paid some distributions. Um, and, you know, you can argue, hey, you can say, well, look at me, I'm paying distributions. But I just say, you know, if you have a bunch of cash sitting around, then you might be okay. Um, but I would rather have the money, you know, extra money sitting there. And then if we can, you know, make it up and pay additional, I'd rather do that. And investors have to be patient. Um, some investors are going to be, you know, not like it. Some people are trying to live off cash flow, right? But when you're going into the deal, like you said, stars might not align. You know, who knows? Who knew COVID was going to hit? Uh, obviously, impacted the entire world drastically. But so far, they, you know, properties have performed, you know, pretty well during this this period. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, let's hope that continues. Right. So what um, what markets are you uh, most interested in right now? Uh, well, we're we live in Dallas and we in Frisco, North Dallas, and we have some properties here. But we're not buying as much, you know, in Dallas. We haven't bought in Dallas quite a while. We're still heavily heavily looking in Georgia, just up and down, you know, uh, Atlanta and surrounding areas. I like a lot still. Uh, we recently did a deal in Kansas City, which I like that market. Someone in our group was looking there. I wasn't lo really looking there, and I started looking at the market after uh, she had done you know, some research. I really like the market. We're doing deals in uh, Arkansas for the first time right now. Florida. you know, Some parts of Florida are really expensive. Um, and So those are probably the main ones. We do own in uh, Alabama and things. We also own in a lot in Memphis. We've done really, really well there. Um, but uh, I would say – some of the newer markets for us are going to be like in Arkansas and then, you know, Kansas city um, and then continue to buy in, in Georgia a lot. It, it's, we've done well there too. 
Okay, so yeah, and I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. What, what do you like about the Memphis market? Uh, a couple of things. One, you know, people grow up there and they, they never move, right? So uh, that's one. And I think at one point in time, this could be a little old data, older data, but it was like 70% of the people there rent. Mm-hmm. Very, very high. And it's something we've done there a number of times. They have what's called a pilot program. It's local to Memphis. And you go in and buy a property and you have to put a lot of capital into it. Um, but they will cut your property taxes by 50% and they'll freeze them for 20, up to 20 years. So, you know, property taxes are typically one of the largest expense line items for a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. So if you can go in there and cut your property taxes in half and freeze them for 20 years, and actually it's assumable, meaning someone buys a property from you, they can, it gets transferred to them as well. In fact, we did that on our property. So that's a big, big incentive. And people start coming in there and they start, you have to put, you know, there's some rough numbers, but about 50% of the purchase price has to go into capital. You buy a property for $30,000, you are putting $15,000 a door. A lot for multifamily. But as people start doing that more and more, it really starts helping improve in the area. And it takes a while to do that. But we, we've done really, really well there. We have a, a phenomenal property management company we use there as well. And um, so those are some of the areas, you know, and then rent growth has been very high there. It's proportion, right? The rent numbers, you know, per month are much smaller than like a Dallas or like where you were at in Miami and things like that. But the percentage increase is, has been very high. And they they started to put a lot of capital in downtown, things like that. Now, it's never going to be Dallas or Miami or things like that. Um, but it doesn't need to be. Uh, we've, we've done, like I said, really well there. And our values have gone up drastically uh, since we've been there. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I've never heard of a program like that. Okay, very cool. No, yeah. So um, with, um, so we touched a little bit on this. Um, as far as investor communication, how, how do you manage that right now? Or especially during these times of reducing anxiety, transparency, or just directly related to the challenge? Are you doing your communication with them any different? Uh, early on, we were doing it more often, like weekly type communication about how rents compared day of the month. So, you know, May 10th versus, you know, March 10th, things like that. Um, and then we are updating as far as number of people that have, you know, tested positive for COVID and things like that and traffic. The things that, the thing that really blew my mind and uh, during this whole time is that traffic was, has been very strong. There are a number of properties we've raised rents on, which you know kind of blows my mind. Um, we had a couple of properties that um, were hit harder because of COVID because the the industry, um, they do a lot with China. And so we hit earlier there um, than some of the areas in the country. But I think as long as you can give people, and people are always going to be anxious no matter what. Even if you tell them this is what's happening, they're still anxious. And I understand that. Um, sometimes they're asking for information that you just can't, they're asking you to predict something. I don't know. I can't tell you how many times investors have asked something that's a prediction and I'm not, you know, just don't get in the habit of predicting things. I mean, the people that get paid a lot of money to do it are wrong 95% of the time. And you know, that's their job. So I would, I would really steer away from trying to predict things. Just work off facts of where you're at. Um, you might not have all the facts yet. That's okay, but as you get them, you want to actually try to communicate that out to them. But biggest thing was everyone was wondering how rents were comparing month over, you know, month over month uh, during COVID. That was the number one thing people were really asking. Okay, great. And on the tenant side, I'd love to hear some of the things you're doing with on-site management as far as proactively reaching out to tenants, discussing their situation having your property management open up their doors to allow them to come in and address specific distresses they may be having. Is there anything different? Yeah, there are a lot of, some of that's localized programs. So there are a lot of local programs. So your property manager really needs to know the the local programs that are available, whether it's food, whether it's, you know, assistance from a financial standpoint. Um, You know, end of the day, even if someone's living in what some people consider, well, that's, that's actually not, 
you know, that nice of a place like that. People just, no matter what, they want to be respected, right? That's the end of the day. They want to be respected. doesn't mean because you make more money than somebody gives you no right to treat someone worse. And I, it actually frustrates me when people do that. And I've seen it lots of times, right? So respect them, put yourself in their shoes, um, be proactive, try to work with them. End of the day, it is a business. You can't have everybody living there for free. Um, it's ridiculous that people even post stuff about that, right? I mean, everyone still has mortgages and things like that. But if you can proactively reach out to them and say, here are the programs available, and then being pro more proactive when people are late with payments, trying to figure out, you know, if you can somehow provide some sort of assistance to them. Like I said, a lot of that's local. Um, and, you know, in some cases, you can't evict, right? Um, so people know that too, so they play games. Um, so, but like again, at some point in time, you can help people that want to be helped. Some people just can't play games. Um, and, you know, frankly, going to try to screw you. And, uh, you know, when time is right, you're going to have to get rid of those people. You know, you're not running, you're not running charity for people that um, aren't willing to work with you, frankly. Absolutely. All right. And when you guys are looking at deals now, so um, during COVID, how, let's talk about reserves. So has it yeah. been very difficult to underwrite during, during this period? I've been asked this question several times and I really haven't been able to speculate on a percentage or numerical basis during the COVID world, but I'm looking at this, which would be, whether it be a portfolio basis or an asset specific basis. Yeah, price, you know, pricing has not gone down much at all, frankly, even with some changes in the lending. So what we've seen is, you know, bridge lenders mostly went away overnight. Um, so the big, big value add deals, very, very difficult to get anything reasonable. We were, you know, we have a lot of bridge loans. I like them for a lot of reasons. People that don't like them don't understand them um, well enough. And that's, you know, maybe their business model. But end of the day, uh, you know, reserves, yeah, they were high, right? I mean, depending on how big the loan was and things like that, right now you might be six or 12 months of, you know, you're basically paying your mortgage for a year up front. Here you go, lender. Here's my mortgage payments for a year. Uh, one point, and then, you know, you're going to get back at some point in time. Um, you can return that as a return, you know, of capital too, if you want to. So that has an impact. Now, the thing going for everyone right now is rates are just like ridiculously low, um, which helps. That's why pricing hasn't been impacted as much when you're trying to look at properties and say, where's the COVID discount? Well, uh, most buyers, including us, were expecting like a 15, 20% discount. And, you know, most sellers were at the time, middle of COVID, were like maybe a 5% discount. You know, pretty big disparate, you know, uh, difference there. So for underwriting, you're going to have to, you know, each, like I said, each loan program is a little bit different, but you're going to have to have reserves. We've had it where a number of deals, we asked the seller to put in the interest reserves that the lender is requiring. Really? So we'd say, hey, here, we'll give you this. Here's the offer price, but you you put in the interest reserves and you can get it back, you know, 12 months down the road when the lender pays, pays it back. Um, other things we've been doing is, you know, uh, pretty much no, no uh, income growth in year one. So even for putting money into the property, um, we're assuming, you know, no, really no, no income growth. I mean, there's some exceptions here and there. Uh, and then um, we're assuming a little bit longer to do CapEx projects. Reality is we're not seeing it take longer. Um, but we were doing that where we pushed that out an extra six months or so from where we normally would be. Uh, you have to be careful with that a little bit because if you're getting money from a lender, they're going to put you on a timeline to get CapEx done. So you can't just say, I'm going to push this out three years uh, because the lender is going to, you know, make you use the capital um, if, if they're loaning it to you. Um, so those are probably some of the, the main uh, differences. Um, but yeah, to your point, lending changed quite a bit overnight. And it's gotten better, you know, from first time it got changed during COVID, it's gotten better uh, a couple of times during COVID. Um, it's not still not exactly where it was before because the reserves are still there. Um, they're not really making a lot of the exceptions like they were before. Like maybe if you're, you know, the net worth, liquidity, those type of things, they're not trying, they're trying not to make exceptions at all for that. Um, but deals are still being done. You know, we're still doing deals. So you can still make it work. 
Okay. And what are your thoughts on um, on cap rates in the wake of um, COVID? Do you anticipate pretty significant expansion? And if so, how much? Uh, the tough one. My position, and, you know, again, I'm not trying to project it on other people. I think there's a very good argument. If, if things continue the way they are from a performance standpoint, they might not, but if they do, there's a very strong argument that cap rates will compress for multifamily. The reason being is that there are a lot of other asset classes that they are will not invest in. So, you know, we deal with some equity guys and things like that. One guy done the phone with him a couple weeks ago. And he said, you know, his people aren't going to even touch like office space for two years. I know other guys that do hotels and, you know, they're not going to, people aren't going running out trying to buy hotels as a norm right now either. So there's a lot of money that people got spooked on. Now COVID you could argue was, I mean, it wasn't a financial crisis that caused it, right? It was, you know, a pandemic. But if you look at the industries that were impacted a lot, I mean, retail got impacted a ton, office space, hotels. So these large equity guys that have a lot of money, I think will will put a disproportionate amount of their equity into multifamily and probably like self-storage for those that like it. Those are the two, in my mind, probably big, big winners. A lot of people say uh, industrial too. Um, I haven't looked at it close enough yet. But uh, so I think there's a, there's a pretty strong argument that cap rates could compress. Um, but that's just uh it's a guess. Okay. All right, Mark, so let's switch gears. Um, there's been a lot of talk about interest rates in the multifamily space, not corresponding with interest rates in the single family space. Yeah. So what, what are your thoughts on that currently? And do you anticipate that's going to be eliminated, the spread between those two? <clears throat> you know, I think there are a lot of things that happen that the correlations between certain things, like whether it's the treasury or whether, I mean, just they're not, the logic isn't there, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think with uh, you know single family, there's so much, so much refi going on right now. It's going to be treated differently than multifamily, where yeah, new debt's attractive, but a lot of people on multifamily aren't doing refinancing because of the of all the actual prepayment penalties and things like that that you have. So, I mean, give me an example. We have a deal. It's like $8.6 million loan, and it's a $2.6 million prepayment penalty on it. I mean, mm. you're going to pay that if you do a refi, right? So I think that um, it's just a different animal, meaning that the dynamics are different. People are uh, – a lot of sellers are pushing deals out under a, an assumption. Hey, assume the loan from me instead of a new debt. So um, it's just a weird time, frankly. So – I just think a lot of the correlation people look for, um, one, this is not a typical situation happening in the market. So it's interesting to say, well, how much of the data that, that we've gathered over the last, you know, four months or so can be extrapolated into making some sort of good business decisions. When, you know, if you look at during a lot of the recessions and depression, a lot of the industries that did really well suffered horribly during you know covid so it, it's uh, i just think it's different frankly so i don't have a real opinion i just say that the dynamics are different um because of what's happened and then with the with the the treasury being so low and the prepayment penalties like for yield maintenance and defeasance if people aren't familiar with that just like really really high prepayment penalties like the example i just gave it's making people react different um in how they buy and how they're selling right now Okay, got it, got it. And touching on underwriting quickly again, how do you see, do you see underwriting changing, if at all, looking out into Q4 and Q1 of 2021? So I think we have to keep a close eye on collections, you know, as unemployment. As we get, in a, get a, an environment where there isn't a bunch of money being thrown at people, um, in fact, a lot of the, you know, people are complaining why is only $400 versus $600. And I, you know, I heard a number, whether it's true or not. Um, you know, 70% of the people on unemployment were making more than they were when they were working. <laughs> and where's the incentive to work other than good work ethic? And, you know, I mentioned we just got back from Florida and there, you know, number of people trying to hire there, people are just lazy. They don't want to work. 
Um, so um, we have to keep a close eye when that runs out to see how collections are, um, whether rents can be pushed. Uh, some parts of the country are doing better than others. So underwriting wise, you know, reserves might go away. I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. They've gotten better, like I said before. If those go away, then you know, pricing's gonna probably gonna get even higher uh, right now than it than it is. So I would say income growth is the number one thing to look out for. Not not to be too aggressive on that for sure, um, especially in your your first you know year or so. Uh, expenses are, are pretty much kind of what they are. You know, they're really you know COVID really hasn't changed much. Other than there are some utilities that have gone up because of COVID, it might continue to go up because people are working from home. So how many more times people flush a toilet when they're working from home than when they go to work, right? I mean, there there are things like that that could continue on for years and years to come. So looking at those type of things. Um, so and then you know lending, like I said, is a big piece. Revenue is a bigger piece. Uh, expenses a little bit here and there. Adjustments. Other than that, you know, we haven't really changed a lot. Uh, on the underwriting, you want to look at your break-even occupancy, break-even rents, and see how low you can go, and, and things like that. So right now, there's nothing really in my mind that would say, "Hey, you know, Q4 and Q1 are going to be drastically different than they are right now." I don't know how, how low rates can go. Uh, frankly, uh, like I said, maybe the reserves will change between now and the, in the end of the year. Just don't know, um, and it will have a it will have a positive impact on for the sellers, anyways. Um, so we're not. You know, a lot of the things we've changed on underwriting, frankly, probably don't even necessarily need to based on current data. But who knows, you know, three, four months from now, we don't know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's like kind of you're saying, don't don't try and predict, right? Just work with the facts. Well, a lot of guys out there do it. I mean, it kind of, it's a little frustrating to me when they do it because, I mean, sometimes there's one guy, you know, guru in the industry saying, well, one of three things can happen. Oh, Really? So when one of those things, three things happen, then you predicted it. I don't, you know, um, they're wrong too often. I just say, you, you know, good common sense goes a long way for sure. And um, we haven't been through something like this before. So all the people that, like I said, were trying to predict things have been wrong yeah. in, in so many respects. Um, but be cautious for sure. Be really cautious on things. Okay. So, and, um, so what would you say to someone who's been studying syndication for a couple of years? They're starting to feel like they're at a point where they're ready to make a move and they understand the language, the nuances we speak, along with securing some strategic partnerships and are basically ready in their mind. What are your suggestions for them during this situation over and over the next year? Yeah, I mean, because it's a good question because people ask me even in the middle of COVID, I mean, I was on several podcasts and they well, are you guys still looking? A bunch of people aren't even looking. I'm like, we're always looking um, for deals, right? So I would say you're building relationships with people, for one, these broker relationships. And, and frankly, you can ask any of the brokers, they had way more time available to them than they've ever had probably in the last, you know, long number of years because, you know, it was much slower for them. So I, I'm not of opinion of trying to time things just like buying stocks and selling stocks right I mean you know it's really difficult to do that to time it same with real estate I think as long as you're educated you make you know you're you're cautious you get people like you said partners that know what they're doing have been through it before um, I don't really see a reason to wait um, because there's a good chance I mean people have been saying for years well you know I'm gonna wait 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 and then you know, these gurus like, look, now I told you, look at now the, the perfect time to buy because everything's going to be discounted. Well, I'm not saying it's not going to be at some point in time, but it certainly isn't right now. So there are a lot of things you can do and a lot of progress you can make. Even if you didn't get a deal right away, there are a lot of things you can do to kind of further your, your, your learning. <laughs> you know, if you never, never visited a property, never been in due diligence, never submitted a letter of intent. Um, you know, these type of things never got with mortgage brokers or insurance brokers. And so there are a lot of things you can be doing right now. Even if every deal you looked at right now for the next six months was a dog, you still learned a ton um, versus waiting, you know, six months from now to start. You're, you're six months behind. Right. Okay. Exactly. All right, Mark. So something, um, something fun. Now I have a lightning round. Okay. Questions and 
Well, yeah, you know how it works. So what book or books have greatly influenced your life? You know, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, I know that's kind of the default for a lot of people, but that changed my mindset more than probably any other book I, I've read. Um, you know, and, and as far as, you know, people, whether they believe it or not, there are, there are a lot of things in the Bible related to money. So um, whether you believe in the Bible or not, I think you can learn a lot from the, from the book itself about money and about wisdom, being wise with money and how you treat people. Uh, so that's, you know, no better teacher. Okay, yeah, and Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I mean, yeah, that's a default, but that's what really made it click in my mind and put me on the entrepreneurial path. I mean, that just made it click like, wow, yeah, where, where have I been? I've always been kind of entrepreneur-minded, but that really helped me understand about kind of the thing like you're working for yourself, you're working, you're an investor, you know, all these different things, which, I mean, seem kind of like just common sense now that after you read it, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it definitely has a big impact for sure. Okay, and how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you greater success later? Um, well, you know, a lot of things happen when you're going through them, and it's uh, it's tough, right? Because in the moment, you're like you're you're questioning why is this happening? You know, the the whole thing about think multifamily getting started really, you know, came out of a a situation where <clears throat> you know we uh, had you know had some money that we didn't think was treating us the way they should be treating us to say. And, uh, and, uh, so it was tough during the time going through it and it was stressful and things like that. But that's how we, we started the company and reality is the company wouldn't exist if that didn't happen. And we also have, we hang out with all, I just said we were in Florida with our attorney, his wife and three kids. We had other people from Portland, uh, from our group uh, there as well. All our friends are from the group, so it's changed our life completely. So, you know, can you get where you're you want to be without going through some of the heartache? I would say yes, but you probably can't get there without going through zero heartache. You're gonna have to go through some hard times. Plus, it gives you the ability. You know, people are always like, "How are you so calm all the time?" You know, something going on a deal or something. You know, we're, we're under contract. Something happens. Going through things allows you to be able to look at things in a bigger picture and understand that a lot of these things might not really be big deals. And also, you can you're going to make less mistakes. You're going to fix them faster as well, just because of experience you've been through. And you can share those. Hopefully, share those experiences with other people. Definitely, definitely. All right. And if you could have an advertisement, you can have an advertisement on a billboard anywhere with anything on it. What would it say? Oh, good question. Um, you know, for us, it, it's going to definitely be around helping families change. That's kind of our avatar, family. Having families, helping families change their life for generations to come while always serving others' integrity and character. Okay, excellent, excellent. And what is a strange habit or peculiar routine that you love? I don't know if it's strange. I have a very... Uh, very strict diet people some people think it's odd but very strict diet and then just you know uh i'm very uh i like to exercise because i it gives me a release so i'm you know i don't miss i don't miss days uh, for that i always make time for that so i don't think it's anything really unusual why well, i think it's a little unusual because she thinks i'm you know a little too too uh involved in it if you want to say but i put my mind to it and you know i just do what I'm going to do, but the, probably the meal is probably the, the meals are probably the bigger, bigger one. Yeah. So I'm interested. What, what, what kind of meal is it or what's, what do you think is strange? Oh, I just eat. I mean, same thing every single day. Oh, really? So like, you know, at night I have like seven egg whites, right? People are like, Oh my gosh, it smells like I was in vacation, right? Eating seven egg whites with onions at, at, at night. We're like, Oh, it smells so bad, you know, and stuff like that. But I just pretty much have like chicken and rice. Um, pretty much, you know, every, every single day. Um, so people think it's boring, but that's what I do. Yeah. One thing on the nutrition side is this program I'm looking at started in September is called 75 day hard. Have you heard of that? Oh yeah. Brett and our group's doing it. Oh really? Okay. So how's he doing with it? How's he like it? He's good. He's about 40 days in probably. He'll do it. He's very disciplined. 
Okay, yeah. So I, most of it's not too, doesn't say, I mean, I don't drink, so I think that'll be no problem. But I think the hardest part is that gallon of water every day. I'm going to have to really see how I can make that happen. Yeah, I, I do. I try to do a gallon a day for sure. Sometimes even a little bit more. Um, I don't like the split routine, meaning I, I do I do cardio every day, and I, well, six days a week, and I do weight six days a week. But I don't really like the split where you have to do this, you know, you have to do it in the evening as well. Yeah. So that's the one thing I don't like about it. Yeah, the 45, and yeah, one outside and one inside. So that's right. Yeah. So even if it's a thunderstorm or lightning or snowing, you still have to get out there. So that'll be. That's exactly right. But I think it's great. I mean, I think it gives somebody, you know, some people need a plan. They really do. Um, and, uh, you know, Brent, Brent, I mean, he lost a bunch of weight, though. I saw him like two weeks ago. He's like dropped quite a bit of weight. It was 30 days then. So, but yeah, so far, so good, as far as I know. Awesome. Good for him. All right. Now, in the last five years, um, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Um, I think uh, blocking time out for, for family has been the biggest thing. I would uh, – it didn't matter what time of day it was. I mean, when I was doing, you know, IT in particular, if you want to say I would – I have people in Australia and India and all over the, you know, kind of the world, two, three, four, five, five. I mean, I just take my phone calls, right, all the time. So actually blocking times out, realizing that, you know, very few things are really truly an emergency. Um, I'm very responsive. Like I said, you can ask anybody in our group how responsive I am. But there are times where I want to block some things out to be able to do things with family or wherever it might be. Um, if there's an emergency, obviously I'll address it, but some things can wait. Okay, very good. And, and so what are some bad recommendations you hear in your day-to-day -day for people new to investing? Um, you know, I think it's, 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 I don't know if it's bad or not, and it is, but it's trying to get people to invest in a deal before they know what they're doing at all, right? So if you're like, so it's, it's just a different mindset of, you know, taking versus giving something right you're not you're trying to take somebody's money or you're trying to give them an opportunity mm -hmm. uh, i also think putting yourself in their shoes i can you can ask a number of investors i've talked them out of deals that we have because i don't think it's this particular deal is a good fit for them based on what i know their goals are very few people are going to do that especially it's stressful you're trying to raise capital right so i see people trying to talk people into things that aren't a good fit for them for you know their their goals so that's probably the number one um and then at the end of the day i mean it's just when someone's trying to, to do something it's all about them and you know the people you you know i mean there are certain people where and i would say doing business with people that have you know a lot of the same beliefs that you have you know from characteristics to, you know, standpoint things like that is more important than some of the technical aspects um, because they could be the best technical person ever and do something that lacks integrity and blow your deal. Definitely, definitely. Couldn't agree more. All right, in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? Huh. <clears throat> uh, probably similar. I mean, I don't think it's really a no. It's probably a, de a deferred no. You know, I think I guess if I do think about it, I probably was a lot more apt, not probably, I was a lot more apt to look at almost everything without a defined criteria and try to, I, I try to make a much faster, you know, uh, no. So if someone sends me something and I kind of already know back on mine, I'm not going to be interested in it before, I'd be like, let me look at this. And I'd spend time looking at it. I'd do those things, even though I kind of knew it wasn't something I was probably going to move forward with. Mm -hmm. Now I have a much more defined criteria and I can, you know, if someone says, Hey, were you willing to do this? Or what do you think about this? Or you want to partner on this? I can say no much, much faster. So <laughs> that's, that's one thing. All right, good. All right. And last one, when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? Um, I'm not usually unfocused I mean, very rarely I'm unfocused, which I think is, you know, which is positive for sure. But overwhelmed um, and stressful and things like that, 
I do talk to my wife more. Before, I wouldn't even talk to her about stuff. One, I don't want her to get stressed about it, right? If it's something that could potentially impact her too. But now I'm a lot more apt. You know, our communications is so much better now and our relationships so much better now that I feel a lot more comfortable going to her. And, uh, and lots of times she has, you know, um, good things to say, right? That I wouldn't have got that perspective if I didn't talk to her. So for me, going just going to her if I'm overwhelmed and just, uh, and she can kind of tell sometimes and uh, not just being short about it. Like, I don't want to talk about it or um, it doesn't really matter, but actually, you know, telling her with more detail. She likes more detail than I do. I'm just like, get to the point, right? But she likes more of the detail. I'm always great at it, but I will try to spend more time doing that and just be calm about it and then just get her perspective. So that's been, that's probably been one of the biggest thing I've done. Excellent, excellent. Okay, Mark, so yeah, we've covered an incredible amount of material today and I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and signing on to talk with us. No, thank you, I really appreciate it and uh, we will definitely talk soon. All right, and so before we sign off, tell the listeners how they can learn more about Think Multifamily, your podcast and or collaborating with you. Yeah, the, probably the best thing is just reach out to me via email. It's Mark, M-A-R-K, at thinkmultifamily.com. That's the best way to get hold of me. Okay, great, great. All right, so thanks so much again, Mark, and I'll be talking to you soon. Thank you, appreciate it. All right, looking forward to next week in um, Vegas, buddy. See you soon. No, we'll see you there. Take care. All right, take care, Mark. Bye. Bye.